Right, we're going to take our two scripture readings together at this time, uh, first from the Old Testament, then the New. Uh, they relate to each other very well, as you will see. Uh, the first reading is from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 7. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Thus ends the reading of the Old Testament. And now to the New, Luke chapter 1, this is our sermon text. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Amen. This Christmas season, we're going to be looking at Luke's version of the birth of Jesus, one of two gospel writers that tell us about it. And we're going to be highlighting one particular theme that Luke emphasizes, which is humility. Uh, Christmas is all about humility. It's about how God did something that seems very humble. In fact, Jesus, when he came into the world, lived a humble life. And there are many ways that we're going to see that he did that. But that the way of God's humility also calls us into ourselves lives of humility. It's a sobering theme. And it's important before we jump into it to recognize that humility has not always been seen as a desirable virtue in history. Uh, an Australian scholar by the name of John Dixon uh, several years ago wrote a book about humility called um, Humilitas, which is the Latin word for humility. And one of the interesting things about that book, which is really good, uh, is how he traces the history of how people thought about being humble. And he said that in the ancient world, particularly the Middle Eastern culture, 
but also the Greco-Roman world into which Jesus was born. Uh, They saw humility as a bad thing, not a good thing. In fact, everywhere you hear, read about, whether it's in you know, Plato or Aristotle or Seneca or Homer, every time humility is described, it's seen as something to look down on. It's something someone does because they're weak. In fact, Aristotle calls humble people dogs, cowering before people that they should not cower before, weaklings. But Jonathan Dixon uh, reminds us that something happened, something remarkable, that changed all of Western culture. Because think about it today. If you read a book, any book, whether Christian or not, about how to be a good person, you're going to find in there advice about how to be humble. Just about everybody today sees humility as a good thing. Back then, almost no one did. What happened? Jonathan Dixon describes it as nothing less than a humility revolution. A revolution that he said began when Jesus was born and climaxed when he died willingly on the cross. And everybody since then has been scratching their heads trying to figure out how could someone so honorable as Jesus so willingly make himself humble. Humility became a virtue (laughs) through the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Well, we may live post-humility revolution, but is humility any easier for us because of that? Not so much. Uh, You will read any book that tells you that humility is what you should have, But anybody who tries to be humble will discover very quick, it ain't easy. There is so much in us preventing us from humbling ourselves. Uh, Famously, Ben Franklin in his autobiography before he died talked about how all his life he tried to be a humble person. It was one of his resolutions for living. Because everybody called him arrogant, it really really hurt his feelings and bothered him as a young man. And so he said, I'm going to be humble. He added it to the list. At the end of his life, he said, there was nothing on my list harder than that one. In fact, I've learned one thing, that human pride is the hardest thing to root out of the human heart. And I agree with our founding father. I think you will too. We need a humility revolution within, not just in the culture, but within. Amen? And it comes in the same way as it did to the culture. Look at your bulletin. We're going to talk about that humility revolution this morning. First of all, where it starts... Second, who can lead it? And lastly, what it produces. The humility revolution. Where does it start? Who can lead it? And what it produces. First of all, where it starts. Look at verse 26. This is the story of the Annunciation. Uh, That that is the word used in history to describe the announcement of the angel to Mary that she would conceive Jesus and bear the child. And I want you to see there in verses 26 to 30. That a humility revolution starts with surprise. It starts with surprise. Look at it. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. Okay, so we're talking about high up here. God himself, the creator of the heavens and the earth, sending Gabriel. Uh, We don't know the names of too many angels, but we know at least two, Gabriel and Michael. And in the Bible, they're described as archangels, meaning they are the top of all the angel hosts. God sends them only to very, very, very special tasks. 
And here God is sending Gabriel, the highest of the angels, down where? To a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Of all places. To a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now notice how he describes it. He describes it in such a way that it shows he doesn't believe the people hearing it will know even where it's at. Uh, Like, for example, when people from other places ask me, where are you from? I always say, I'm from a city in Mulberry called, a city in Florida called Mulberry. And I say it that way because I know if I just said Mulberry, people would be like, okay, the place where Andy Griffith lived, is that, is that the place, Mulberry? They wouldn't have any idea where it's at. I have to give the context. A city in, in Florida called Mulberry. If I were from Miami, I wouldn't have to say it that way. I could just simply say, Miami. And everybody would immediately know where it's at. Nazareth was a mulberry, y'all. That's good news. That the highest of angels was sent down to among the lowliest of places. To do what? Not to fight a battle. Not to pick a rich person for a wonderful, glorious task. But to visit a virgin. A young girl. Unmarried, probably a teenager at this point, who was betrothed to a man named Joseph. Joseph who? A carpenter, a regular guy who worked with his hands every day. And yes, it says there in verse 27 that he was from the house of David, but the house of David was not a glorious thing at this time. It had been. But did you know it had been hundreds of years since a king had sat on David's throne by the time Gabriel got sent out from heaven to Mary? There was nothing left of the house of David. Caesar Augustus didn't know nothing about it, nor did he care about it. Same thing for all the others, other powers that be at the time. What you have here is a surprising messenger sent to a surprising person in a surprising place. And notice verse 28, what he says. It's amazing. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Wow. What a message. For an unlikely person. Now, that uh, message shouldn't be translated as it sometimes famously is, Hail Mary, full of grace. That's not actually a good translation of what it says there. That's why in the Bible you hardly ever see it say, Hail Mary, full of grace. Because highly favored or oh favored one doesn't mean that Mary herself is full of grace, which she can share with you. What it means is that Mary has received grace at a high level like nobody else ever has in this moment. The greeting is, Mary, welcome. Grace has found you, and you have found grace from God. God is stooping all the way down from heaven right down to where you are in the lowest place to show you a very, very uncommon level of mercy. That's surprising. And if it's not surprising to us, it was at least surprising to Mary. This is the key thing to notice. Look at what what, uh, Mary says or what she does in verse 29. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Translation. Mary said, really? 
Me? God, you would come to me? You would send Gabriel, the great angel, to tell me that I've received grace, that I have received grace? Something's got to be wrong here. (laughs) Gabriel, you must have taken a wrong turn somewhere. That's what's going on in Mary's mind. Now let me tell you something. It says a lot about a person, what they are surprised about versus what they're not surprised about. Think about it with yourself. And kids, you can think about this, and your parents can think about the same thing. Kids, you may be at the end of the year award ceremony at school. Parents, you may be at the office party where they give out yearly awards. What does it say if you receive an award and you're not surprised that you received it? Then what does it say about you if you received it and you are surprised? Well, two very different things, right? And by the way, I think we've all been in both situations. Let's be honest this morning. There have been times where the award was given and we thought, I can't believe I didn't get it. That had my name written all over it. They got it. They don't work half as much as I do. There are also times where the award has been given to us and we thought, Really? I think you you read the wrong name. Well, let me ask you this. Are you surprised that God's grace has found you out? That's the remarkable thing about Mary, okay? That's the remarkable thing about her in this story. She received more grace from God than anybody had received because she was going to bear Jesus into this world. That's an incredible gift. And yet when that gift came to her, she didn't say, oh, about time, Gabriel. I was expecting you. Finally, somebody recognizes me. Instead, she says, it can't be. Me? That's where a humility revolution starts, y'all. Right there. If you are not surprised that God's grace has found you, you cannot even begin to really be humble in your life. You can't even start on that journey of humility. You don't even, don't even think about it until you start with God. You came from the highest height, not just down to Nazareth to find me. You went down, Jesus, to the very pit of hell to find me. Because, by the way, that's what the Bible says about the human heart and the human condition. The Bible says, no one seeks God in all the world. The Bible says there is no one good, not even one. Not even one, y'all, not even Mary. No one good. And so when God comes down to show grace to any of us, he has come down from the highest of heights down to the lowest of lows. And it ought to, quite frankly, shock you that God has chosen you for grace. It ought to shock you that you're on the way to heaven rather than hell. And if it doesn't, humility is a closed road for you without a bridge to get there. You'll never be able to get there until you get that idea deep down into your heart and down into your soul. Now, I know this is a very unpopular idea. Today, we live in a time of self-esteem, self-help, self-care, self-pleasure, self, 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 self. 
And the big deal today is talk yourself up. Make yourself feel better by magnifying yourself. The Bible says make yourself better by lowering yourself. Can you believe that? By lowering yourself. Now, of course, appropriately, that there are people who have views of themselves that are not accurate. I'll grant you that. Maybe too low. Because you are, after all, made in the image of God, of course. But I mean, if you have not reckoned with God's verdict against your sin, all the self-care in the world will not help you become a better person. Mary stood out in her culture. Everybody was talking about how to get honor for themselves back then. Nobody thought about humility. And here she is, shocked that God would go all the way down to meet her in mercy. That's where it begins. Now, secondly, who can lead it? See, every revolution needs a leader. You can't have a revolution without somebody leading it. Who can lead a humility revolution in your life and in mine? Well, the, the angel tells Mary the answer, uh, starting in verse 31 all the way down to verse 37. He says it in a couple different ways, but he's saying basically the same thing. He says, Behold, you will conceive, and in your womb you will bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. Then later in verse 36, he says, Behold, see twice, he says, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age also has conceived miraculously, and she will bear a son, for nothing will be impossible with God. Two uses of the word behold. And in the Bible, when an angel or when God says behold, then they're always about to say something next that magnifies a work that only God can do that no human being can do. Always. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold... The Lord will split the sea and you will walk through on dry land. Behold, God is about to do something that you can see, miraculous, that gets you through a situation you could not get yourself through. This shows you, God alone is capable of leading a humility revolution because the only way for us to become humble is to see that if our lives are to be fixed... God must fix them. God must fix them. That's the reason, by the way, for the virgin birth. That's the reason why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. He could not have just been born of Mary and Joseph in the ordinary way. Because then Jesus would just be merely a man. And merely a man would only have been able to do what you or I technically could do, given the right amount of work or exercise. <laughs> He had to be born a virgin. He had to be born by, be, by being conceived by the Holy Spirit, which is what the angel tells Mary in verse 35. The Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you, and the child to be born of you will actually be called the Son of God because he will be conceived by the power of God. So that Jesus, being a man, would not merely be a man, but also he would be God himself, the very power of God exercised towards the salvation of humanity. God alone can do it. Now, notice, how does God do it? This is incredible, too. Because not only does the angel say, your child will be great, he will be called the Son of the Most High, 
He will be given a kingdom that will never end. But he also talks about how lowly he will be. He says, he will have the throne of his father David, verse 32. Well, we've already talked about the throne of David. It was nothing. It was rubble. And God says, I'm going to enthrone my son upon the rubble of David's house so that from the rubble, he's going to rule the world. That's amazing. And then it goes even further. Uh, There again in verse 35, he says, He will be a child born to you, conceived in your womb. The great king that God is sending is going to become small and low, infinitesimally small. He's going to become a fetus. And he's going to have to grow within the womb over the normal nine-month period. He's going to be born like every other baby, and he's going to have to grow up like every other child. And then and only then is he going to be able to suffer in order to be exalted. In other words, here's what God does. He works to save us in such a way that only he can get the credit. Because not only does he do something that we can't do, he does it in a way we would never choose to do it. He works power through weakness. He works wisdom through what seems to the world to be foolish. He works strength through what seems to be powerless. And so he saves the world by a baby. Who would come to the throne by being nailed on a cross. The only crown he would ever wear on this earth was a crown of thorns. Think about that. Who would pick that? And yet, y'all, here is how Jesus Christ is able to lead a humility revolution. When you and I stop boasting in ourselves and start boasting in that. Say, what do you mean, boast in that? Isn't boasting bad? Well, let me tell you this. Everybody boasts no matter what. Think about it. Everybody, you got to boast about something. It's the only way you get motivated to live your life. Um, Think about an extreme example. If you've got an army of people going to fight a battle, what gets them motivated to go fight? If you think about it, it's a pretty crazy thing to run into battle. You got to you got to have some serious sort of mental rewiring in order to be able to be willing to go do that, and that's what. Military training is meant to do. What does military training train you to do? To value country, to value freedom, to value the people back home, to value the past and the great historical battles and and victories that have won freedom for Americans. They learn how to boast in something that's really good so that they have strength to go into the next thing. And you do that too. When you wake up in the morning, You're being motivated to go into your life by something that you're boasting in. The question is just, what is it? And let me tell you, if we boast in ourselves or any other created thing, that is, anything that's not God, the only possible outcome will be either we will be proud and arrogant or we will be full of envy. Let me explain. Imagine your motivation every day, your boast is your mental smarts. You're a smart person. 
I know a lot of y'all are smart people. And so you might pride yourself in that. I can figure life out. Any problem, I can analyze it and come up with a solution. I'm going to forecast all the potential problems in my life, and I'm going to do everything I can do to prevent them from happening. I am smart, and I'm going to get up today and go apply my smarts to my life. Okay, think about that person. And that, that's actually, I'm saying it in a funny way, but actually, don't people do that? Don't we do that? What happens if I, by chance, do end up predicting the problem right and solving it? I'm looking down at everybody. Look how smart I am. I told you I was smart. Shoo, right? My head is growing. Is that not the case? It's impossible for me to be humble. It's impossible for me to think I didn't deserve the award. If that's what I'm boasting in. Now, think about it this way. Say I'm boasting in that. And I miss the big thing. I miss forecasting the disaster, and I can't prevent it, and it happens anyway. And I, I missed it. I made a mistake. What happens to me then? Despair. Or, this often happens, somebody else predicts it and solves the problem instead of you, and then it becomes what? The green monster of jealousy and envy. <laughs> can't believe they figured it out I'm smarter than them I'm better than them I work harder than them I missed it and they got it let me tell you you can't be humble that way either the only way to true humility which Jesus has shown us once for all it is a good thing to be humble the only way to be humble is to learn how to stop boasting in any created thing I mean none of it you might think that sounds radical, but I mean it radical. Like literally let go of every single other boast in your life and only boast in the work of God through his son Jesus Christ to save you and solve your greatest problem. If that becomes your boast, if that becomes the motivation for why you want to get up and do life every day, then your ability to humble yourself as we're about to see as Mary does here becomes greater, becomes more possible. Then peace and joy and contentment can take the place of the pride and the, the anxiety and the envy and the jealousy and the despair that comes from idolizing something of my own. What are you boasting in? What are you boasting in? Smarts, strength, health, Looks, praise, money, harmonious family life, how you're viewed on Instagram. <laughs> what are you boasting? It could be anything. What are you boasting in? Now, lastly, what does a humility revolution produce? Look at verse 38. In verse 38, we see a famous response of Mary. And Mary really is a model here and an example for everybody in this, in this passage. Um, many of us were around our, our family tables for Thanksgiving, right? And uh, one of the things that's fun about families and being together with families, you get to see 
resemblances in family members, even family members that don't live near each other anymore. They get together and they say some of the same things. They maybe even look alike. They have the same mannerisms, some of the same personalities maybe in your family. Did you all see that? It's really interesting, isn't it? Just to observe it. Well, in the family of God, spiritually speaking, when someone is born again into God's family through the grace of God, there becomes family traits that start to get impressed on the heart and the character of the person. And what Mary is doing right here is she's modeling one of those family traits of the family of God. She's modeling what a humility revolution in the heart produces in the life. When she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What a response. I mean, notice she uses the word behold, which is the same word God used twice in his message to her. Behold, you will conceive and you'll bear a child even though you're a virgin. Miracle. Behold, if you want to know I do miracles, look at your cousin Elizabeth. Go visit her. She's having a baby too and she's old because I gave her the ability to bear a child. Next week we'll talk about that visit between Mary and Elizabeth. It's an awesome scene. Behold, behold. And here Mary returns with her own behold. The beholds that God gave were introducing God's announcement of what his part was going to be in the salvation of the world. Mary's behold is introducing what she knows her part to be. And the contrast can't be any different. God says, behold, look what I'm about to do. Mary says, behold, I am just here simply to be what you want me to be. Servant. Literally, slave. I am your slave, Lord, she says. Whatever it is you say about me, God, I want that to be true about me. Whatever it is you've planned for me, I want that to happen. Whatever commandment you give me, I want to cheerfully learn to obey it. That right there, y'all, is the family trait. Humility is not simply low self-esteem. Humility is not talking bad about yourself. Actually, we've already picked on the people with high self-esteem or overinflated. Let's pick on those with low. <laughs> I'm there sometimes. Someone with really low self-esteem is always talking down on themselves and not thinking any, not, not factoring the grace of God into their lives at all. What do they have in common with the arrogant person? Thinking about themselves at an almost obsessive level. Y'all know how it is. I don't have to tell y'all about how this works. Self-talk, everybody does it. You're either talking yourself up or talking yourself down all the time, and we can never find a balance. It's like we go one side extreme or the other side extreme. Both sides are just obsessed with self. Mary shows what a humility revolution does. It actually will help you forget about yourself, praise God. Don't you want to? Don't you want to be able to say, I've got something to pour my life into that's bigger than me, and I'm so interested and so engaged in pouring my life out for that thing that, man, I forgot what time it is. Man, I forgot I was hungry. 
man, I forgot that people didn't recognize me for the good things I did. I didn't even think about it because I was so busy, absorbed with this greater thing. Mary found the greater thing. For her, it was the glory of God. She knew that grace was undeserved. She knew that it was only God who could save her and save the whole world and that he would, in fact, do that. And so, therefore, she knew her only part was to magnify him. Her only part was to lay her life down at his feet and to offer herself as a living sacrifice to the Lord. If there is one trait in the Bible that marks those who truly believe, it's that one. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that he not only was born for you, but the fact that he was willing to go to a cross and be crowned with thorns to take away your sin. And not just to take away your sin, but to give you blessing that Jesus had earned through his obedience. Even though you had disobeyed. To see that, to really embrace that, man, that is transforming. Because finally, for the first time in my life, I don't have to worry about taking care of me. He already did it. He did it. Done. It is finished, he said. Therefore, what do I have left? Everything. Everything. The whole reason for human existence. That's what you have left. To glorify God. To enjoy him forever. Mary models it. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Does anybody want a humility revolution? Isn't it a a marvel that our culture has been changed and shaped so much by the Christmas story that we believe humility is good, whereas everybody before believed it wasn't? Isn't that cool? But isn't it also cool, to say the least, that that same revolution can happen in me? And what Mary did here is not something out of reach because it was produced by the grace of God in Mary. So that it could be reproduced in us.